That's why the, in a death phobic culture, when le- euthanasia is legalized, the death phobia remains intact. It's not challenged. It's not softened. It's amped up to the point now where you shouldn't have to die and you shouldn't have to suffer either. And it, it kind of begs the question, man, what are you doing here? Hi, everyone. It's Raghu, and I'm back with another edition of Mind Rolling, and I'm back with somebody we just said hello for the first time, Stephen Jenkinson. Stephen, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. So uh, Stephen wrote a book some years ago, right? This, this Die Wise is the name of the book. Yeah, 2015 it was. Uh-huh, so eight years ago. A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul, and I'll... I'll attest to the uh, sanity and soul for sure. It's a, it's quite a, a a tomb that you have written here. <laughs> I, I hope you meant tome, not tome, tomb. Tomb. It's no, no. It's quite a tune you have written, actually. Oh, tune. Yes. I, I heard tomb with an M. Yeah, yeah no, M-B. that's probably what it was. But I, I'm rethinking and going. Yeah, this this was a great tune. Thank you. Tome. Yeah, it's. Uh, it's. I just mean it's chock full of all sorts of information yeah. and and provocations about how we treat death in this country, and that that is going to be the subject of this podcast. Okay, and that is a fair assessment of what I tried to do. I think. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Um, can you uh, just to get going, just to get to know you? You know, uh, we both just uh, found out or realized we're both from. Canada, right? And where you're from? Are you from the west side of Canada or east? No, I, no, I'm Easterner. So Eastern Ontario, around the Great Lakes Basin. Right. For that's where I was born and grew up, and then really school school in Boston actually. So I can imitate that accent, although I won't <laughs> do it to you. And then parts unknown as as welcomed me, you know, in the days since. But all all the formative time was uh, red and white. Canadian for sure. Yeah. So we live not uh, right now. I I'm from Montreal as many people know, listen to the podcast and Stephen isn't more than five hours from there as we speak. So a little bit about, I guess, I mean, I remember reading that you remember stuff when you were like three years old about what in the hell is this all about? What is this guy? What is, you know, the curious questions. Can we start there to give an idea of of what led you to be uh, such a profound life involved in this particular subject? Well, is- uh, <laughs> that's quite a, a an achieved thing, if it were indeed true. I'm not sure three years old, in particular, uh, may, marks the time. But mm. I can tell you this. Yeah. Uh, I, of this, I'm quite sure that uh, people credit me with quite a uh, memory, uh, and I'm glad they do. I don't really think that's what it is, though. What I have is a kind of ear for the cadence and the loping qualities of stories. Mm. And I can hear it. 
Um, and when I hear it, the stories begin to assemble themselves or reassemble themselves in my anticipation of what's coming. So it's not quite memory. It's something subtler, I, I feel. It's not factual, really. And how did that come about? I'm sure I was read to in the womb, but failing no. that certainly from a very early age. And I think the cadence of the human voice is something that came to me early and often and something that became Im imminently trustworthy to the point now where uh, my ear, as many people's ear does, distinguishes between the cadence of story and the cant of argument. <laughs> and when it comes to argument, generally speaking, I just go the other way. Mm. And the, the reason for that is um, there's something about the structure of, of argument that is um, somehow hostile in principle to the way the human mind seems to work to me. In, in that it's very, I mean, if you follow this for a second, it's quite wondrous. You you enter into an argument. Yeah. A couple of days later, you remember that you argued, but you're hard pressed to to recreate what you argued about, or the nature, or the the flow of the argument per se. Just the intensity is available to you, and maybe a few high highlights and so on. Why is that? I think it's because the human memory, in particular, is not inclined to to that kind of uh, agitation. But a story amazingly begins to tell itself and retell itself as soon as you enter into it you say you can say for example i don't remember how this goes it was uh uh but anyway there was this thing and it, uh, it's all you have to do and as you enter into it the story begins to murmur itself across the the filaments of your memory i think and as it does it's it's astounding how it it reassembles or literally, this is the actual meaning of the word, it remembers itself. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm a fan, as you can clearly tell. Yeah. And uh yeah. and I'm I'm very lucky that I was read to in that way. I don't yeah. know about the quality of what I was read to, but yeah. certainly the cadence was more than enough. Right. And and what's behind it, behind it in terms of the depth of the human that read it. Yeah. To you. Yeah. Yeah. So uh but then what what uh, propelled you from your youth into, I know you went to, at one point, Harvard Divinity School. Right. What propelled you into that direction? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I tried to get into the priesthood of, as I like to call it, something or other, <laughs> uh, when I went to Harvard in the late 1970s. And a, a niggling detail emerged in uh, the interview process. And that was that I had never been to church of any description, kind, or stripe. Now, I didn't think that was a big roadblock to joining, but clearly the powers that be thought otherwise. And I think in retrospect, they were right. You know, they wouldn't have me. And I think that was wise on their part. Mm. And so I had to find some conduit for whatever that was that was animating me and manifesting me and and the, the the thing that I tried to translate into priesthood or devotional life, I had to find another translation. You know, and I, I don't say that with any uh, animus at all towards any organized religion. I mean, I, I genuinely mean it. I'm not really an organizational guy, so I think it was wise for all concerned. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and somehow 
somehow, and I don't take a lot of credit for this, I, I've seemed to have fashioned a kind of <laughs> alternative monastic proposition for myself. Uh-huh. And I don't live the full life of, of self-denigration and so on that you might equate with monastic life, but the the sense of devotion and um, the notion that things are not what they could be and probably should be has been there for a long time. And I've had to translate away from grievance and towards grief and and something something in the order of, okay, so what's to be done? In other words, now that the gods have spoken and we are in the state that we're in, mm. what's to be done? That seems to have occupied me deeply in for the full duration of the second half of my life. Mm. What about, did do you have any connectivity at all to Eastern? Have you studied Eastern mysticism? Not, not in the least, actually. And uh-huh. uh, it, it is a huge, obvious gap in my uh, education. Uh, it was, I, I had my hands full with the West. That's the way I, I've come to understand it. The, mm. the West is, uh, is a two-fisted operation and, um, they've, they've received or we've received the, the sum total of my focus and, and, uh, my, if I can use a technical term, my give a shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I do notice, Stephen, in this book, that why I asked that question because there was some connectivity, at least maybe because I'm, you know, I studied there a, a lot and been lived there a lot. Maybe it's I'm, you know, I'm connecting stuff that maybe isn't there, but I did get that in different as reading through the book. Yeah, I I do get that, and I I don't have any. Uh, axe to grind about about the uh, the resemblance. I'd I'd say, well, I'm gonna I'll tell you a story that says it better than a, just a one line observation. Okay. So years ago, when I was uh, gainfully employed, and I was an organizational guy for about twenty minutes, well, literally several years, but not very long, in the hospital system in Ontario. Mm. That's what that's the death trade days that I refer to in Die Wise and so on. And uh, the phone rang. And there was a woman calling me. She was the executive director of the Native Canadian Friendship Center. And she was inviting me to come talk there, which was, uh, you know, on the face of it, unusual and and uh, worthy of some uh, questioning. So I asked her, how did she hear about me and what did she have in mind? And she said, oh, anything that's on your mind, you know, whatever you want to come and teach. I said, you know, again, how did you hear about me? She said, well, you did this thing, remember, a month or so ago? Oh, yes, I said. She said, well, I had a couple of staff people there. And uh, they came back, and they were quite impressed with you and what you had said and and all of that. And then she paused, and she said, and, and the thing that really got me is they said, you know, finally, we got somebody on the inside, hmm. quote. And there was a long pause, and I put together what she was saying or what her staff people were saying to her. And I said, you mean... You had staff people who came to something I did, were with me all day, and came back and told you that I'm a Native guy. And she said, yeah. Obviously thinking that was the case. Mm. So what I'm saying is, in this particular example, these people heard something that was familiar enough to Mm. them. Yeah. That they did a kind of involuntary math and figured, 
he's got to be a native guy because where else would it come from? Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I say the same thing about things Eastern. You know, they, they may not be exclusive to the Eastern part of the world or to Eastern religions or mysticism or thing. They may be, they may have tendrils elsewhere and, and the resemblance is, um, should be encouraging. Uh, I, yeah. I find it encouraging. You know, it's, it's not a consequence of devotion. It's a consequence of, uh, I don't know, it's an interesting kind of resemblance that somebody who comes from where I come from could be at first pass, at least mistaken mm. for mm. a kind of Buddhist positive guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know what you know about me or, uh, particularly somebody who died recently, four years ago, who I have worked with and been close to, Ramdas. See everybody out there? We have really not talked at all, and this is all sharing our lives together on this podcast. So uh, he introduced me. He's a, a, a big cultural, you know, countercultural figure, Tim Leary and Richard Alpert which you do now. And he went to India and he met his guru. And I met him in Montreal, of all things, uh, <laughs> when I was running a radio station there. Anyhow, long and the short, I did get to, I wanted to, you know, the stories were extraordinary that he was relaying about this, this being. So I did get there and I did meet him. And the connection here to what you're saying is this. The very first thing, uh, over many days of my first being there, hour, there was a few Westerners, you know, young, we were young hippies in our early 20s, in the early 70s. It was all about, there's only one, th I mean, he didn't speak English, it was all through translators and so on. And yeah. I'll be colloquial in terms of what the trans, you know, the, the, what he said, the transmission was, there's only one thing going on. There is, in, in Hindi, it was called Subek. It's all one. And you go, Christ, Krishna, Hanuman, Buddha, Mohan, one. There's only one thing going on. And we got it demonstrated to us in, in many different ways over the th three years we were with him. I was there a year and a half. And uh, so the idea that my mistaking in some way in a superficial way, that you had no real connectivity to studies in of Eastern mysticism, yet I was getting this core deliverance of a message. And, uh, and the reality is, this is no matter what in our human experience of going within to divine that which is the stuff of who we really are, they're the same um, container, I mean, different containers, but the same essence is there once you do that, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I should say that my disavowal is not entirely accurate because when I was going to the Harvard Divinity School, I was a foreign student, right? A, a, yeah, a legal yeah. alien. Yeah. And uh, as a result, my employment opportunities were severely curtailed. But one option was to be a janitor at the Center for the Study of World Religions across the street from the Divinity School. Mm. I was that janitor. And in so doing, I met Jains and Zoroastrians and 
Buddhists and I don't I can't think of any other groups right off the, off the top of my head. But so I'm not completely devoid of contact, you know, but it wasn't yeah, study. Yeah. It was um, right. We we would we would often sit there and just ruminate about the, the mysteries of life for 15 minutes before my sense of responsibility caught up with me and I pushed the broom a little further. <laughs> Uh, that's great. That's where Ramdas went. Uh, Richard Alpert and Tim Leary were involved with the psychedelic experiments at Harvard in the mid '60s, early '60s. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's that whole. Story. Uh, so I was there ten, probably twelve years later, yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. Um. Okay, the book, uh, or the and the core message, uh, which again, I I do. Reference Ramdas. He was a teacher back in the day. Then he became a friend, and then as he got a stroke. And he, over the time, he's he was in Maui actually, living there. Right. Um, we created a situation for his friends where he was able to continue because of the wonders of the internet. Um, but I did one, meet him, by the way. I should say. Oh, you did. I did meet him briefly in Maui. Oh. Uh-huh. You know. Well, this I did not know. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. It, the way it happened was um, the Canadian government, through the um, uh, NFB, National Film Board of Canada, uh, produced a film about the work I was doing at the time in the death tree called Grief Walker. And there was a, a kind of small private think tank, I guess I would call them, on Maui, who had, who had, uh, were alert to the, the existence of the film. Got in touch with me, asked me if I'd consider coming to Maui to teach this material. Mm. And they said, um, uh, we're just going to, we have a board of directors. We're going to show the film and uh, we're just seeing if if you're interested. And if, and if we basically, if it's unanimous or if the majority rules, then the invitation will be formal. And so uh, Ramdas was the third person on this triumvirate of decision makers about whether I was going to be invited to Maui or not. And apparently he didn't like the film or he didn't like me or one of the, I don't know which of the two. And so he voted no, but the other two voted yes. So I ended up there anyway. And then I did meet him completely by happenstance. He was, um, he'd been driven in a van to a a place where I guess he got physiotherapy routinely. And I was walking down the sidewalk with the guy who brought me at the very moment that his van opened up and there he sat. (laughs) And, And so we actually met in that moment. And uh, and he looked at me. He kind of glared, I would say. But who knows? I mean, I don't know what the look meant because I, you know, the given the the stroke and so forth, whatever it meant, I don't know. And he said, um, he said, I've seen your movie. He said, <laughs> and I laughed and I said, I heard. <laughs> and that was it. That was it, man. Oh my God, that's funny. Well, Bodhi B was part of that, right? Bodhi was this is the guy who brought me, correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not sure. I remember this. It's something in there that that uh, makes me think. Yeah, I was around or something at the time, or he might have mentioned uh-huh. it to me. Um, that's crazy. <laughs> that's yeah, crazy. that's great. Yeah. Um, but what I was trying to say is. I mean, you're, you know, you're totally on the same page. Ramdas was all about this country, this country, the West particularly treats death in, in a way that is just so gigantically negative for everyone's lives in all stratas of society and government and all of it. So, you know, that, that, 
you guys were were right there together on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like this. You say the way we die has been drawn up into the system so thoroughly that it's likely your grandparents wouldn't recognize anything that would be routine care when it's your turn. Right. High-tech healthcare has become an undeclared war on dying itself, nothing less. Caveat emptor. Caveat yeah. emptor. Yeah, let, why don't you give us a general idea of, of uh, I think we all have some connectivity to it, especially if we're a little bit older. It doesn't have to be as old as we are. But uh, what what is it that, that you're getting to here in terms of how lost we are? I should say, first of all, that I'm not shooting from the hip. I actually, I paid my dues. I spent time in the trench. I was there. I was there and uh, administratively, and I was, uh, I was kicked up the ladder rather quickly. So I saw things at a number of levels. I ended up as a associate professor at, a, at the, med- the medical school, for example. So I did see this stuff from the inside. So mm-hmm. uh, it's not a hatchet job. The book Die Wise is emphatically not a hatchet job against anybody's medical system or the people who work there. Okay, I'm saying the dilemmas are societal fundamentally, not really, um, they're not they're not specific or unique to the healthcare system, either in my country or the one you're in now. And uh, And lo and behold, though, I think the dilemma may come to something as simple and heartbreaking as the following. The, the, the rate of medical in, uh, innovation, excuse me, innovation in medical technology mm. is so extreme. It's beyond your wildest reckoning. That's earlier in, the, in that quote that you say, uh, that's what the allusion to the generational divide that yeah. people simply wouldn't recognize routine healthcare. I mean, when you when you are in serious need of it, uh, you you will have the same experience. You simply won't believe what they can, and will, and would do to you, in the name of quote caring for you. And it really challenges your understanding of what constitutes care. You see, so here's the dilemma, and it's a practical dilemma as well as a moral and ethical dilemma. The innovation is rampaging forward, ever cresting waves of who the hell knows what this means? Should we be using this technology? You know, and so on. So the practice wisdom that should be guiding its use continues to lag behind further and generationally further and further again to the point where the, the physicians in particular are taking their cues from the purveyors of the technology, not from the the ethics committees that should be having a lot of hesitation about the whole matter. And the reason for that is on the other end of the story, the system has um, deeply insistent consumers of these products and methodologies in the form of patients and their families. And so it's a rock and a hard place story. The patients want the best. They want the latest. They want the greatest. You see, they don't want to hear about the ethical, you know, uh, subtleties and the dilemmas that ensue. They don't want to be in a test group. They don't want to be in a placebo situation. They want the real thing 
all the time, and their loved ones want that for them, as you'd as you'd expect. The consequence then is nobody gets to find out a priori what all of this means and what it's doing to us. And the legalization of euthanasia, although it's not called that here, it's called MAID as an acronym, Medical Made. Assistance in Dying. Uh -huh. Correct. Yeah. yeah. That is, is turning into uh, uh, something so somber making and so haunted because it's gone from, you know, people should not have to suffer. We, you know, we make dogs suffer less than we make dying people suffer, all of that. And that's why MAID is there. To in a very short number of years, the qualifications for MAID are being proposed in the Canadian Parliament to not any, any longer be predicated upon the proximity of death. Now you should have access to MAID just because you're, and I'm not sure what to, word to use here, suffering, fundamentally unhappy, incorrigibly depressed. All of these things become the new, the new threshold for whether or not you should be allowed to take yourself out. And you should oblige the state to cooperate with you. This is where we are. And anybody who wanted to see it could see this coming because it had nothing to do with dying. That's why the, in a death phobic culture, when euthanasia is legalized, the death phobia remains intact. It's not challenged. It's not softened. It's amped up to the point now where you shouldn't have to die and you shouldn't have to suffer either. And it, it kind of begs the question, man, what are you doing here? If you've disqualified death and dying and you've disqualified suffering, I mean, there's not a lot of life left that once you eliminate those two issues and those two presences, seems yeah. to me. I mean, I'm not saying that all of life comes to that, but without those things, without limits and frailties and endings, then everything we're talking about has no meaning. You can't find it. Everybody's left to their own devices to, you know, swing away as best they can. And uh, and there's not a lot of tr life training, not in the West, to take upon yourself the kind of Oppenheimer responsibility. Do you know what I mean by that reference? No. Well, of course, the film's out now. I haven't seen it, but uh, yeah. But if you're either, old enough, you're generally yeah. yeah. You're aware of his story and the. Uh, that he quotes the Bhagavad Gita at the moment of the detonation in the desert. And yeah. he realizes that something is now afoot that can't be caged again and won't be. And he's, and he goes further and he says, we have taken the power of annihilation into our hands. Who among us is qualified, readied, capable? And the answer surely is no one. No one is. And there we are. And within how many years? It was brinksmanship all over the place, and Kennedy and the and you know the Bay of Pigs and the whole thing. And uh, you know how far away are we now with Chernobyl and the war in Ukraine and Putin saying what he's saying and threatening and saber rattling and so on. And all of this comes from the fact that you know we could have done the thing. And I'm not. I have no opinion about whether you know that technology should have been dropped on people in Japan and. I don't know. It, it's vast. And and did it save lives? It's very hard to say that you kill lives to save lives. Yeah. But but maybe time. at some level, there's a case to be made. I can't make it. But God mm. knows now 
we're in the backwaters. We're in the backwash of something that no one really anticipated. The same thing in a, in a more muted fashion is happening with medical technology, it seems to me. Mm. Yeah. Wow. That's why I wrote the book. Yeah. Yeah. Like I well, said, that- it's not a, it's not a slander. It's not an expose. It's mm. a plea. Well, at the core of it all, Stephen, is it not that one word, fear? And do you think, uh, I mean, I believe we, I mean, that's kind of the work that I've been doing and that we do in terms of, you know, continuing the teachings that we've been given from India, from this particular being. Uh, is to address fear and separation. Well, yes, indeed. Fearful people are scary people. You don't know what's going to happen when people are when are deeply invested in their fears and rationalize their fears, mobilize them, uh, attach them to a creed of some description, uh, assemble a core of grievance around their fears. Yeah, that's very, that's very tangibly dangerous business. So yes, I'd agree with you. Yeah, but I think just, just the basic human fear of death, which is endemic in every being. Some beings have uh, have dealt with it, dealt with that fear. The, through various methodologies, perhaps, and uh, they're not subject to this polarization that really you're talking about. You know, the polarization of 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 completely uh, not making any kind of approach to the reality of life, birth, life, and death. Yeah. You know, I mean, here's something from from the book. Um, I have seen waking up ex- expecting to live. This is yeah. this waking up expecting to live is an amazing yeah. thing, right? I have seen waking up expecting to live every day on the job, and I've seen what it does for us. I've seen that there's a diminished ability to suffer. There is little instinct or capacity for grieving. There's a headlong flight away from discomfort, hardship, dying. There's a degree and a kind of depression here that would be declared some kind of emergency if it were known to be the widespread thing it is. Waking up as we do is job security for all the mental health professional in your yellow pages. I love those few lines. But, yeah, I mean, we have, you know, we start to say, well, how can we approach some kind of detente with our perspective on death? How do we do that? Well, we can't do it until, um, how about we start approaching suffering, just basic suffering, and have a, a different perspective on that. I just believe that that's... Uh, extraordinarily important uh, in terms of, of, of making 
friend, shall we say, with the concept of death? I think if we cultivated a capacity to be sad, we'd, we'd make enormous headroads into our propensity for fear. Mm. I think sadness is an absolutely compelling and legitimate alternative, but it needs as, at least as much tuition as fear does. You have to learn to be afraid, obviously, and you have to learn sadness as well. It's not an inevitably occurring substance you know, regardless of the circumstance. I mean, sadness is not depression. It's not despair. It's much closer to sorrow. And it belongs. And this is a absolutely, I mean, I would never talk somebody out of their sadness when it comes to dying. I mean, the thought of it makes me abundantly sad, I have to say. And I'm not working to get on the other side of the sadness, to be honest. I think the sadness is its own, it's its own uh, wisdom. Mm. Yes, yes, indeed. I mean, this is how we grow. Uh, it's that that Leonard Cohen famous song, uh, "The Crack Lets the Light In." Right. In yeah. No, this is extremely important. Yeah, we have such an aversion. To just, I mean, I know this in myself, just in any kind of um, uncomfortable circumstances. I've spent a lot of time in India, so there's a lot of physical discomfort there, just the nature of the third world. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, the presence of this perspective that seems endemic to us humans you know, the gravitating towards what is the easiest path, what is the most comfortable path. And, you know, this this is a, a great difficulty. Yeah. Sadness, I would say, is life-affirming. The fear of death, the clinging on to life for its own sake at all costs, is not life-affirming. All it does is reiterate the upside of life and feed the grievance when the upside passes from view, either temporarily or eventually permanently, right? So, so grievance has no place in grief, I would say. And these things are <laughs> acres, miles apart. A grief, as I understand it, and you probably came across quotes to this effect in the book, grief is a skill not an affliction. Mm. Grief is not a feeling you have about something. Grief is the something. Mm. Yeah. Isn't there a story? I don't know it well at all. I've just, but you know, you know it up, down and sideways very likely. So the Buddha, when he's a young lad or a, 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 an adolescent is living in the life of Riley. Is he not? And quite mm -hmm, comfortable. In the castle. Yeah. There you are. And then he hops over the wall, does he not? And his encounter with the real thing is utterly overwhelming Yeah, for him, no? And it's perhaps, my guess, it's the beginning of his real tuition. It's the beginning of the tempering of his heart. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, if it happened to him, you know, it should happen to a good number of the rest of us too, it seems to me. And it does, minus the tuition of the heart business. I mean, it often goes in the direction of uh, 
of um, medication and self-soothing of all kinds, as you've said, and uh, reiteration of the fundamental rights and privileges of a consumer in a consumer culture. Yeah. 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 You can't consume dying. Even with all of that, the, the, Going back to the fear factor. Yeah. Even though, yes, I mean, the advancements that, that society has made and worldwide to keep you alive longer, which is, is the basic desire of people who encounter death. I mean, everything I've seen, you, you're there day to day and you have far more... Uh, first-hand experience, but that seems to be what what is going on. Even with that, because that's very difficult for us now to deny as an individual. It's in our DNA that we you know we want to survive. So not to take advantage of 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 the uh, enormous advances made in medicine to help you survive. I mean. To me, that's that's. Uh, I'm not sure how that issue can be uh, bridged, you know, in a way that makes sense, you know, which is part of. I have a suggestion. Okay. I have a suggestion. Uh, I agree with you, halfway. That it's true that most people, the vast majority of people, wanted to persist. Okay, and they took steps and made decisions uh, predicated on that desire. I don't know that they were well-informed decisions, but nonetheless, this was their mobilizing principle. But nobody really told them what it costs to deke your time. (laughs) Okay, when you sidestep your time, there is a consequence that nobody seems to figure on. And it's, it's this, it's basically, you're taking the suicide's risk, are you not? That it's no better, that it's no different on the other side of all this. It's very similar. When you when you bargain for more time, more time in and of itself becomes the goal. The quality of that time is absolutely irrelevant when you're bargaining for it. But when you get it, I'm here to tell you, it doesn't look like what you thought. And then before you know it, all the advanced directives, all the living wills, all the get me out of here, beam me up Scotty stuff, all of that stuff is out the window now because nobody was ready for the downside of more time. But there's a distinct downside to more time, and this is what it is. If you're dying anyway, more time means more dying, period. Who's signing up for that? Who puts that in their living will? Nobody. And when it comes down the pipe, and it does, and there's no recourse except stop, just stop everything. And, and I mean, nobody, nobody on the care providing end knows what to listen to when you are in extremists and you're flailing about saying, get me out of here, just kill me. I can't stand it anymore. What about it can't you stand? And you know what one of the answers is? The vast acreage of your disappointment. Which is? 
and a sense of having been betrayed by the deal or the bargain you entered into. Mm-hmm. You're not betrayed. You're you've entered into a, an arrangement where betrayal is part of the deal. <laughs> you see, because you you didn't consider the fullness of the operation, and and the fullness is this 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 uh, noble conveyance, which is your body, can only do so much, and your will doesn't take the hint. Mm-hmm. It's an awful thing, you know. Your will says, "Let's go, let's keep going," and your body says. Listen, I'm going over here. You be stupid by yourself. And and back and forth it goes. <laughs> right? And, you know, the body wins by losing, doesn't it? Yeah. The body wins by losing. And the will goes, you know, what the hell's that? So even, that's what kept me busy. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean... But even with all of that and and recognizing most people end up in this particular situation of elongating their lives through medical interference, waking up every day, I'm, you know, here I am again and I expect to be kind of attitude. I think though still, like you use the term will versus body, right? Will, I take that ego could be another word, could it not? Uh, could be, yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, in my tradition, shall we say, legacy, whatever, Eastern uh, thing, there is a lifelong practice of moving out of that mind, story, will thing mm-hmm. into the intuitive place, shall we call it? You want to call it soul, Buddha, mind? I mean, there's so many different words for this, but something behind this thing, way inside of your uh, place where you hold trust, that if that is worked on, even given these other circumstances, which are pernicious, there's no doubt about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. if you if that perspective shifts enough, there may be a better opportunity to relate with the trans the uh, transition, basically. Surely, surely. that's my my surely. Thought. And I think the flip of that, the the other face of that, mm. is that there's such a thing as too late. Mm. And as the sooner North Americans hear that phrase and feel it in their bones the better for all concerned. There mm. is such a thing as too late. Yeah. Baby, stop waiting. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I speak to next generation through this podcast or other work that I do and and say this is, you know, we're talking about something that you may be inclined to completely dismiss because of your age. Right. But this is a way to live more fully now. Right. To engage yourself in this way. Can you talk, uh, there's one, you know, a law in physics that you talk about, uh, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Can you talk about yes. that? I found that fascinating and I did never, I had never, never encountered it. Heisenberg, by the way, is a gener- the generation of physicists prior to uh, Oppenheimer, just oh, as really? a matter of note, oh. yeah. Oh. And they, they knew each other, I think. Uh-huh. Anyway. Heisenberg's uncertainty principle sounds wonky and uh, carnivalesque when I'll describe it to you. 
but the consequences are really quite something. It goes oh. like this. So it, it was born in the realm of uh, quantum physics. So quantum physics is basically, for the longest time, theoretical, because there was no technology that could establish the, uh, the, the material reality that was being posited in quantum physics, right? Mm -hmm. So it was all, if this is so, then, and so on. Yeah. But it was not really observable in its primary state. Mm. Okay. And so then they've developed certain technologies uh, that enabled them to arrest certain, I, I can't do justice to this on the physics level, but to arrest certain uh, el base elements and make them observable, okay? And traceable and, and trackable and all the rest. And Heisenberg and probably others too said, but wait a second. If we go that way, and it's clearly the way we're going, because we don't have an alternative, then it behooves us to realize that what we're observing here is not, is not the building blocks of reality. What we're observing here is the consequences of our, our intervention into the building blocks of reality. So we're forever looking in a kind of intervention mirror or interference mirror. Right, and those are the consequences that we interact with, the con the up the upshot of what we do. That's what he was saying in, at the level of physics. But you can hear the mm. the not only the rational but the ethical other side of that, which is mistaking, forever mistaking your take on things for the things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, he, he, you speak to it uh, really well also in the book. Uh, the idea is the true nature of a thing is very available to you, provided that you obviate yourself to the point where you are purely receptive when you are a non-event in the process of observing. You get out of the way, and now you're capable of objectivity. That is a gigantic uh, spiritual truism. Ah. It seems to me objectivity would be best understood as the the view or the perspective from nowhere. Yeah, or no preferences is another way, perhaps. No particulars, maybe. Yeah, all of the above. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's one interesting uh, chapter you talk about hope, which you oh, yeah. personify as a tyrant. And I don't know. I don't know if you've ever somebody who's done a lot of work with uh, death and dying uh, is Roshi Joan Halifax. Is that ever you know who she is? I've never met her, but I'm I'm alert that she's in the world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I uh, we we've done stuff with her in the past and so on. She's a marvelous person and very wise. And we talked about hope one time, maybe on a podcast. And she came up and she said, well, hope in and of itself is, um, it's empty. Not empty in the Buddhist empty, <laughs> which is full. Not, but not good empty. <laughs> not good empty, yeah. Right. But I would, I would say wise hope 
where you're not expecting a, a, a certain outcome. You're not bargaining to get anything. You are, um, you are, pres- you are combining with an attitude that explores uh, the mis- is curious and explores the mystery and looks to what m- might be, you know, a right action. What do you think about that versus how you you talk about it for quite a bit, the tyrant hope? It's true. Hope and me haven't got along for a long time. Um, And hope may win. I mean, in the marketplace of ideas, clearly hope wins every time when when it's confronting me. But I would say the scenario you just described is, is imminently workable, practical, doable, without the substrate of hope. As if, as if the notion being that hope would somehow uh, make that more possible or more likely. I, I just simply don't. Here's where my my take on hope comes from. I should say, mm, mm-hmm, mm. I don't have any inherent feelings about hope. But what I did instead was I observed people in the throes of hope as they died. Okay, so that's the that's the particulars of my investigation. I was observing what being hopeful did to dying people, what it obliged them to do, what it obliged them to set aside. And the the conclusion that arrested me was that hope resembles a mortgage in a deeply unfortunate way. The notion being that a mortgage functions by um, making certain things impossible to achieve in the present moment because your money is being siphoned off for the sake of a a future, future ownership, outright ownership, whatever it is. Mm. Hope functions virtually identically from everything I saw. In other words, nobody hopes for the way it is. We hope for the way it isn't there. And the flip side of that would be this to me. So here here you and I are talking. And one thing is probably unnecessary for us to talk. And that is us hoping that we're sitting here talking. (laughs) We don't have to hope that. We can do it minus the hope. Now, I'm not, I'm not an idiot. I mean, I, I can certainly observe with the best of them, the apparent payday that hope seems to bring to people who are going through it. I get that part. I really do. I get that part. My caveat, my warning signal is this. At what point do you get to stop being hopeful? When is the payday of being hopeful? Or is hope a little bit like a crack habit? That the more hope you have, the more hope you need. The more hope you need, the more hope you have. And there doesn't seem to be a statute of limitations on the whole arrangement. (laughs) That. Particularly if the hope for thing never comes to pass, which in the in the death trade it rarely came to pass. So dying people were dying with their hope, not reconsidered, but annihilated instead. You see, and and you know a, an element of that would be how many times was I asked in interviews in those days, and and even now. Did I find that people with a spiritual or religious orientation to their lives somehow miraculously had better outcomes than people who were 
you know, the great unwashed, non-aligned crew. <laughs> yeah. And my answer routinely was, nope, I didn't see any particular upside or benefit that exhibited itself amongst the, the, the devoted when it came to dying. And here's why. Because their devotions were crafted not with the realities of dying in mind. Their devotions were crafted, and their understandings, I should say, were crafted to keep the realities of dying at bay. That's how it actually worked itself out. And then, then it's, a, it's a terrible come down when you realize that your devotions, mm. when it comes to dying, die, it's dying one and your devotions nothing. What's the reality, Stephen, of dying? What's the reality? Well, I think I used it in the plural. So I think there's, it's, it's, I find it more opportune to say the realities of dying. Realities. What, what I mean by that is that it's bigger than you. <laughs> Maybe I'll tell you briefly the story. I, I took my, my son and his young friend when they were about seven or eight years old to the local friggin' carnival or crazy place, you know? And I, I hated the rides because they made me nauseous, but, uh, mm -hmm. but they, they wanted, they're desperate to go on one and they had to go with an adult. So I volunteered reluctantly. And it was one of these things that they, they just hauled you up to a Jesus unholy height <laughs> and then just dropped you. Mm -hmm. And you're on some kind of bungee thing. So, you know, you're rescued mm -hmm. at the last minute and annihilation mm -hmm. was averted. Mm -hmm. This is supposed to be fun. Well, I was, I was beside myself with terror as we were being raised higher and higher so that you could see from King City, north of Toronto, you could see Niagara Falls. I mean, I thought, this is just wrong. And this is no visible means of support. And it was God awful. I couldn't speak. Okay, when I finally could get a word out, and I had these two young guys on either side of me, I just said this, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing about it now, but I was absolutely terrified. Mm. That's as close as I've ever been to the momentum of dying, where this mm. thing is hauling you up and you have no recourse. And all your investment in personal development and, and, and you know, the range of certainties that you rely upon, these things don't obey the realities of dying. And, and the realities of dying simply don't consult your belief system. In other words, mm -hmm. as I understand it, death is a deity. And so it needs to be learned, right? And it needs to be, in a sense, accommodated, if not welcomed, that you exercise a degree of kind of a radicalized hospitality that doesn't seem naturally occurring because it's not there to win. It's there to, so that life prevails and you finally and epically and elegantly don't win. <laughs> so you know that great line from, uh, I believe mm. it was uh, Rilke. Rilke's mm. great. And if it's not Rilke, maybe it should have been. But it's the gist of it was, we're not here to succeed. We're not here to win. We're here to be defeated by greater and greater things. Mm. I don't know that. That's phenomenal. Yeah. So death is one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we're at the end of our time, but I, uh, I found something in the book that I, I think it's a nice way to close this conversation that I want to okay. read. Waking up it, each day is a gift. 
It's a gift that is not reward for playing by the rules. It is a <laughs> gift from the gods, giving each living person the capacity not just to go on, but to go on as if he or she has been gifted to go on in gratitude and wonder that all the things of the world that keep them alive have continued while they slept. Wonder, awe, and a feeling of being on the receiving end for now of something mysteriously good. Hmm. That's pretty That's good, great. isn't it? it? Yeah, it's effing great, Stephen. It <laughs> thank really you. Is. I'm, I'm. Thank you for reading that out loud. I, I don't. I don't read my own stuff, um, mm. and to hear it, especially with the generosity with which you, you know, pronounced it all, uh, it was uh, it was a delight to hear it actually, and I. Mm. I quietly admire that guy at that time. <laughs> uh, lovely. Anyhow, everybody, this is a book that I highly recommend. It'll be in the show notes that you, you know, we'll link it up so you can get uh, Stephen's book. And Stephen does a lot of, uh, I don't know if you do workshops anymore, but I know you speak around the world, basically. Uh, True. And uh, we'll we'll get uh, a website and all of that to you or social media, whatever, so you can connect. And uh, again, this is, uh, and I don't care how old you are, it is uh, important, and it is really part. It's as it's as important, for instance, as what's going on ecologically in this world, as 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 much as what's going on polarization of society. This is important. So thank you. Thank you for being here, Stephen. Amen. Thank you for the invitation and for the kind considerations that what I've been trying to work on, uh, you let them in for. And it's really very kind. I appreciate it. All right, everybody. This is Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. We shall see you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>